Hello, wonderful people. This is Jason English with Things About Things, simplifying concepts without sacrificing depth. And I am here with my friend, Kimberly Dole. Kimberly, hi. Hi. <laughs> so this, oh yeah, I can't wait. Been waiting for a long time for this. And so we're going to talk about social determinants of health. And in my brain, it's a relatively new phrase. Like it's a new phrase for me. And I know this is something that you dedicate your life to and your career to. And so um, you work with Novant Health, Community Engagement, which is regional health care. The title, Senior Manager of Operational Performance. Don't know really what that means, but can before we get into what that means, can we talk about what in the world, before we even talk about the details, what social determinants of health, what does that phrase even mean? Just give us an intro of what the phrase even is. Yep. Um, there are days that I don't know what my title means, Jason, so I'm glad, I'm glad we didn't start there. Uh, social determinants of health are the factors where you live, work, and play that will affect your health outcomes. And when we say health outcomes, that can be everything from the likelihood that you would um, struggle with a chronic disease, something like asthma or COPD or um, diabetes to your life expectancy. And what people have found, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and lots of other health researchers, they have found that about 80% of your health outcomes are determined by where you live, work, and play, as opposed to the experience that you would have with your doctor and your medical care. My goodness, 80%. Yeah. This leads to the immediate question, which might be not, not quite time to say it yet, but I'll say it is, why would knowing that matter? It matters for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it matters in the approach to healthcare. So a lot of times when you have an interaction with your doctor, you have 15 minutes in the room, out of the room. You've got to have your list ready with the very specific conditions that you're experiencing. The doctor's ready to write you a prescription and you're right out of there. You're on to the next patient. When you consider that only 20% of what impacts your health actually happens in that room, the questions about your food security or your housing situation, what your home life is like if you're experiencing interpersonal violence, those never come up. And for the vast majority of people, that's a really important determinant in how well they will be able to live and how long they will live. Um, our current medical model isn't structured to facilitate that conversation. It also matters because social determinants of health needs and outcomes like chronic disease and life expectancy follow very sharp trajectories related to race and socioeconomic status. All right, which really maybe is where the word social comes in, I'm not sure, but for social determinants, I mean, what are some, what are some factors here that, that help determine? I mean, it's, it's based on where you live, work, and play, is that what you said? Yeah. So the, the social part, like just knowing where you live, work, and play, that's one thing, but there's like social dynamics, I'm, I'm assuming things such as how many resources there are among that community and not, what kind of power dynamics and political and programmatic, I mean, there's probably so many paths to go down, but I know that you focus in medical care, but I know it probably has implications to so many things, but yeah, where do you even begin in that? So I think, you know, you told me before I press record how much you love data, yeah. which is probably connected to your title. Mm -hmm. But do you want to talk about a little bit about what that title means or, or, you know, or more specifically why you are in that role and why the data, why collect data and what you do with that data? Yeah, I love data. I'm a big old data nerd. I think it's so powerful um, to be able to look at objective pieces of information from multiple sources and pull together a story that confirms what people who often don't have elevated voices have been saying for a really long time. That's my favorite thing about it. How do you do that? Yeah, I spend, <laughs> I spend a ton of time looking at different 
maps. I look at socioeconomic data. I look at tons of census data. Um, I look at health outcomes. I use all of these different sources, most of which are publicly available. But then probably more importantly, our team spends a great deal of time in communities that have high risk factors, connecting with trusted community leaders and community members to ask about lived experiences. And so that's where we pair what we're seeing objectively through all of these different sort of external sources mm -hmm. with a community-led solution so that we can make sure we're actually partnering with people to address what they perceive as their greatest need, as opposed to being pretty paternalistic, which the medical field is known for historically, yeah. to say, this is what I think you need to solve your problems. It's really, really important in our approach that we ask the community who obviously has needs what they want to be able to address them. So good. You're so succinct. <laughs> Thanks, it's because it's, it's still uh, corporate healthcare, and so we do everything fast. So amazing. How did you get into this? Because I mean, we've been friends, I'm, I'm just going to say 10 years. I don't really know. I don't keep track. But does that thing seem right? 10 years ish? Yeah. yeah. And I was I was at your wedding, uh, standing you up there with you and Matt. Appreciating. I remember it like it was yesterday. How long ago was it? It was 2012, July 28th. He'd be really proud of me for remembering. What made you want to get into this? Is that I remember when you got your master's degree. Is this mm -hmm. what it was in? I never really asked what it was in. Is, is this what you focused on? Not really. So um, after about 10 years of working, I went back to school full time to get my master's degree. I felt like I was kind of at the end of growth opportunities where I was. I had really enjoyed what I was doing, but it had become a little bit repetitive. So um, I had the opportunity to go back to school full-time, which was a gift from my partner to say, yeah. go for it, go do that. That's going to so be awesome. Good, yeah. um, and we had to do a preceptorship as I finished my MBA program. And a dear, dear friend connected me to Novant Health. And at that time, I actually worked in their patient services department, which is this awesome team of people who do chaplaincy and end-of-life care and interpreter services. And all of these really extraordinarily loving things that make up really um, exceptional care, but you don't really think about traditionally in the medical community, that preceptor leader um, connected me to my current boss. And she said, I think Kimberly has the gene of loving people in communities and might be an asset to the team. And I've just been there ever since. Uh, I've been there for three years now, just loving most seconds of it. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course the the greater narrative of what's going on. And so you take this data, you interpret the data. This might not even just be about social determinants of health, help for all, all of us, but can you give us a little tutorial, some advice? How do you take data, raw data, and even begin to figure out how to interpret it? I mean, you kind of shared a little bit about in community and hearing stories and what do you do with raw data? How do you, how do you, what's the step from data to interpretation to telling a story? That seems daunting. It can be, especially because social determinants of health aren't happening in a silo. Right. It's this complex ecosystem of challenges that are continuously changing because they are affected by multiple things. And so one, you have to be focused on um, either the social determinant you're looking for or the community you're seeking to serve. And there you start to target in on, you know, which of the data sets you're focused on. Um, after that, it's starting to look for patterns or uh, things that start to stick out, patterns or anomalies. And then it's just starting to craft those patterns into a narrative that's easy to understand if you're not a data nerd like me, um, so that somebody will care. Ultimately, what I'm trying to get to is this thesis statement, because I work for a, a nonprofit healthcare system, but it's still a business, is a thesis statement that addressing these social determinants will make people healthier in the areas that need it most. And that's the right thing to do. It is also a viable business option. So those two things are not mutually exclusive. We don't have to burn down the patriarchy to <laughs> achieve the goal for excluded populations. We can leverage the resources that we have, but execute them more wisely 
and question systems um, to be able to make lasting change. Did you just solve the political polarization in like one paragraph right there? I feel like you might've just done that. I mean, I, I don't want for to. president. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do think you asked me a little bit um, when we were talking earlier about like different strategies, like what people can do. And I really feel like one of the most important things that, that any person can do is in this climate, especially realize that policies are not the same as politics. Like so much of social determinants of health, the needs that people have around things like food and housing and interpersonal violence. I can work my whole life and I will affect change for a hundred, maybe a thousand people. If I engage with representative leaders, we have the ability to affect change generationally for millions of people. And so starting to understand things like food policy or housing policy, things like redlining or you know, different things that will affect someone's health and well-being for generations and engaging politicians at different levels of leadership to challenge those things is incredibly powerful. And like, you don't have to be an expert to email your representative yeah. or to learn about a policy online. Yeah. Anybody can do it. So can you maybe give an example? You said redlining. You can use mm -hmm. that example or, you know, whatever comes to mind in, in your day-to-day -day stuff. What's an example of a social determinant? Yeah, yeah. So um, housing is one of them. Okay. And I think uh, redlining is a good example of how social determinants have lasting impact from a policy perspective over generations and how it's so closely correlated with segregation, segregation and racism. So um, redlining started in the 1930s. Um, the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation um, started making maps of different communities to assess the credit risk that they would have. Would a creditor want to invest in houses in this neighborhood if they came up for sale? And what they did is we'll use Charlotte for an example, um, because I work in that community a lot. They picked four neighborhoods around Charlotte, like Myers Park and Dilworth, and pretty fancy neighborhoods right near the country club was another one. And they said, these are green neighborhoods. If you wanted to invest in a, in a housing scheme, if you wanted to invest in real estate, this is the best place to do it. They took um, minority communities, specifically African-American and Mexican, and made them all red communities, which meant not only did it completely annihilate the chance that investors would want to invest in those neighborhoods, but it also made it much more difficult for someone who owned a home to be able to get a competitive rate on their mortgage or to find other investors. And you can actually look up the, uh, an image of what made a neighborhood less desirable and they ranked people by their race or ethnicity. So the most desirable neighborhood was individuals of Scottish or British descent, you know, kind of waspies, waspy folks. And then number nine was, um, I'll use the term African-American. That's not the term that's on the image. And number 10 is Mexican. I mean, you can see it plain as day. And what is important about that is in America, Typically, your home is the greatest asset that any family has. It's the largest piece of equity that you have. It's your chance to build um, wealth for your family over generations. But the condition of your home is also an incredibly huge determinant of your health. So one of the largest predictors of asthma, for example, in New York City is roaches, because roaches <laughs> will carry things that will make you sick. So if you live in an apartment complex, uh, they'll cause lung infections. If you live in an apartment complex that has roaches, you're much more likely to have the chronic disease of asthma. So housing affects your health in multiple ways. You fast forward to 2008 with the housing crisis and the same neighborhoods that were redlined in the 1930s had the highest rates of foreclosure in Charlotte in 2008 from predatory lenders who were majority white led companies. And you can still see it today. If you look at the Dilworth area of Charlotte um, and you look at Myers Park, there were racial covenants that prevented African-Americans from buying land in Myers Park until 1968, which you know, my parents were buying their first house 
1968. And so when you start to look at the geographies of how our cities are constructed, this is not unique to Charlotte. Um, it's in most American cities, but you can see it now in Charlotte specifically, about two thirds of white residents own their home, about 42% of African-Americans own their home. Um, and those red line, those original red line districts still have the lowest rates of home ownership in the county. So that, um, those areas that have the lowest rates of home ownership, it's called the Crescent region of Charlotte. It makes about a half moon shape over the city. They're also the areas where life expectancy is the lowest, where access to care is the lowest, where food deserts, which means you have to go at least one mile to get to the nearest grocery store or place that sells food is the highest. Um, and they're the places where people have the highest rates of poor mental health. Um, and they have the highest rates of a number of chronic diseases. Um, ultimately, it's the place where if you took a life expectancy measurement in the Crescent, uh, you can expect to live 69 to 73 years in that part of Charlotte. If you go south to Ballantyne, which is a much more affluent, much more white part of town, you can expect to live 82 to 88 years. So you think about that 69 to 82 in terms of life expectancy. And you start to realize how much these factors and access to different things, these social determinants, um, not only does that lack of access rob people of their inherent dignity and their health, but it is literally taking years off of their life. And the foundation of that particular example, if I'm understanding you correctly, was whether a bank will give a loan. 100%, yeah. So financial investment determines your health. Yeah, I would say um, your access to opportunity, right. resources, and social capital right. absolutely determines your health. This might be a really naive question here, but you, you addressed like cockroaches and all that, but would how else might a lack of a financial investment investment from a bank, how, how would that lead to, like, let's say your house isn't worth as much. Yeah. Or you don't own it. How, how, could, how would that lead to the whole area not having health? Mm -hmm. So I think it's more if you don't have the financial stability mm. that owning your own house provides. Okay. Any of those areas also have the majority of their populations spending more than 30% of their income on rent. And uh -huh. so when you think about individuals who are in varying levels of salary mm -hmm. um, and how much of the income that they're earning has to go to housing because they don't own it, right? that takes away the opportunity to do things like afford transportation. That's so, yeah. Housing. And then rent keeps going up, but if you buy a house over time, you're 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 still at the price that you locked in on early, and you're paying less than you would if it was if it was rent now. Yep, you got it. And, so and that's just that you don't have access to that amount of money, and that number probably keeps going up, and then that's that much less you have for those things. It makes sense. And that's just for basics. So we didn't even talk about medical bills. Right? So that's just for those, those essential social determinants. And that's if you can afford rental property. In Winston-Salem, the list for public housing is, the wait list is three years long. Um, so that's to get into rent subsidized housing. Okay. Um, often individuals who are at the bottom of that list are single males, um, which is really interesting. Um, but so, yeah, the example we just talked about was if you can afford a rental home at all. What's another example? Is there, you know, so we've talked about housing. What's another example of what leads to this? Yeah. Um, so we can talk about um, criminal justice and food access. Um, so there's about, 
I wrote down the stats because as a data person, I didn't want to lie to you. Just right. Right. We'd have to like, we couldn't post it online. We'd have to start over. <laughs> she lost all credibility as a data nerd. It wasn't accurate. So there are about 16 million people in the U.S. who live below the federal poverty guideline, which is about $12,000 for one person to earn a year. That's what gets you to the federal poverty line, which is extraordinary. That's a very small amount of income for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so about 16 million people who live at that line and they are food insecure. Mm-hmm. The likelihood that a young boy from that income bracket, sort of the lowest income bracket, will end up in prison by his 30s is 20 times higher than a boy who is in the top income bracket. So again, you think about like that investment of power, that investment of finances. Right. If you think about the incarcerated population in America, nearly half are in federal prison for drug-related possession crimes. So we're kind of tracking through here. Who's more likely to go to jail? What you're likely in jail for or in prison for? In North Carolina, only 39% of incarcerated people are able to find work within a year of release. And in North Carolina, if you've been convicted of a drug felony, you have to wait six months to apply for food stamp benefits or what's known as SNAP. So about a third of people are actually able to earn gainful employment after they get out of prison for that first year. But for the first six months, half of the population isn't able to apply for food assistance when they can't find a job. There's no law in North Carolina that says you can't ask about somebody's previous incarceration. Um, So most employers are a little bit hesitant um, to hire someone who has a felony record. But in order to get those SNAP benefits six months after, you usually have to um, also engage in drug treatment programs, which if you're not insured can cost anywhere from 50 to $500 per session. And so it's stuff like this that helps you track the path of how people arrive in situations um, that seem pretty hopeless. Um, And it just makes me ask the question, why would we ever think it's a good idea to deny a person help getting food? What is the benefit of making things harder for a person who needs help even if they've done something we might not agree with. Yeah. It's like the punishment continues. If you, let's say you did got in trouble for drugs and you do your time, the time continues. You're still punished beyond. Well, I guess what my heart keeps going back to is how does data and the interpretation of data and telling the stories going to some of those examples that you gave, whether it be housing or incarceration or, you know, food insecurity. With your, with your role, collecting the data, interpreting the data and telling the stories, how is there ever change? Mm -hmm. There is change. And I am really encouraged by that. Um, Sometimes it is patient to patient change. Um, So we have a program called the community health worker program. Um, where we have a person who is from often a high need community who is paired with a very high need patient. Sometimes they meet with them in homeless shelters, sometimes they meet with them in their car, but they work with them for 90 days and they carry them through this journey of connecting them to care, teaching them how to access different resources and communities. And they also have these things called personal empowerment plans where they ask the patient, what is your goal? What do you want to achieve? And then they celebrate the wins together. Um, And I have seen extraordinary things happen for patients who come through that program. Um, One individual comes to mind who had been convicted of a drug-related charge. Um, He is now about to become a peer support specialist, which is a helper of individuals who struggle with addiction as someone who is working through his own recovery process. He's about to get his master's degree. He moved out of the homeless shelter. And if nothing else happens in my tenure with <laughs> Novant Health, it will be enough that yeah. he is well. 
But I also, I do hold hope that we can use individual stories like his and we can pair it with statistics that a lot of people might not be aware of and might make them question things. And we can turn those into programs and we can turn the programs into collaboratives and the collaboratives into legislative change. That's what I hope happens. Yeah, and I was going to get to that. So that that man, there's a story of relational, organic people just being humans. And that's a success story. But you mentioned, you know, in your career, you might help see a hundred or a thousand, but then you talked about legislation and policies. So you have programs with people who care, who want to bring about change. And that is good. And like you said, even if that's the only one, but obviously you don't want it to be the only one. So, (laughs) so talk about how in the world, the data, well, you kind of went through it just now, but maybe you can explain it more. How does the data interpretation and the telling of a story go beyond people to people relation? How does it ever build up into the legislation? And not to sound pessimistic or like to, or to even speak against what you said earlier, but I, I guess what I mean is beyond just me writing a letter to a politician. Like, you know what I mean? Not to say that it doesn't have meaning or won't bring about change, but I'd love to hear from you more than just how I can write a letter. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's such a, don't knock writing a letter to your politician. It's such a good activity. I'm so sorry. It's not, I'm not, I don't want to discourage anyone, but you know. Well, although, I mean, it is true. I think some of the um, legislative leaders of North Carolina might have at this point blocked my email address because there's maybe two frequent letter writing campaigns. But I mean, they are in their position as a representative democracy. So it is their job to listen to the letters and the calls that we make. And Mm. the more that we do that collectively, then the more they listen. I mean, Tom Tillis, one of our elected representatives is engaged in conversations around prison reform. Um, He's a Republican and he's engaged in some of those conversations with democratic colleagues. So again, politics and policy aren't always the same thing. Okay, Um, yeah. I do think that when you think about how you can transform change on a large level, for me, most of the time it starts um, not so much with the data aspect as it is bringing other people into the conversation, honoring the voices of the people who are actually affected and lifting them up, whether that means um, you're out registering folks to vote or you're bringing the narrative of this gentleman into the boardroom with our CEO to say, I would like you to meet this person so you can understand his lived experience. There are a million other people who are experiencing things like him Mm -hmm. and we have the opportunity to use our resources for good. You know, I think it's about how do you create the bridge between those levels? And it doesn't have to be that you write a whole new law. You know, it doesn't have to be that you save the world. I think a lot of times when we think about things like social determinants of health, racism, policy, systemic change, it's really easy to become numbed by the complexity so that we do nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's either the, I can't handle it, I'm going to completely check out, Or there's this really strange other side of the spectrum that I have to do everything and I'm going to be a savior to this person or this group. Neither of those feel consistent or sustainable to me and neither is particularly helpful. I feel like what's more helpful is to use the gifts that you have, whether it's data analysis, communication, looking people in the eye, (laughs) inviting them into spaces to say, how can I hear what's going on with you? How can I bring your story into a space where it might not otherwise be? And how can I help you achieve what you need while setting some pretty healthy boundaries? So what's, what's the ultimate success in your, like if you have a romanticized fantasy of, I am the senior manager, (laughs) operational performance, within the context of the of healthcare and you would just daydream of like within 10 years this is going to happen like what is the 
what, you know, even if it was just this one person, that would be enough. But what if you went to the other end of that spectrum? What do you really want? What's the big time? Yeah, the big time is a phrase that we use called health equity. And that means everybody has a fair shot to be as healthy as they can possibly be. Everybody always has a fair shot to be as healthy as they can possibly be. That's the big dream. So good. And we, I don't believe that this side of heaven, that dream will be realized, but it doesn't keep me from trying. Yeah. You got to keep going. Yeah. So, all right. I'm thinking somebody right then just thought I'm, I'm a, cause I can think of a few people that they might've just went, well, this is America. They already have that. <sighs> so how would you respond? Not okay. That's how you would respond. Um, but, but, you know, so we have already talked about some of it. Cause so, you know, with the housing as an example, Yeah. but how do we have those conversations? If somebody goes, well, everyone does have an equal opportunity in this country, even if they are in a, in an area that's underserved, they still have the same opportunity. How, how would you respond to that? So I'd hit you with some data. And I would yeah, tell there we go. <laughs> that that is fundamentally untrue. Mm. Um, I believe that ability is dispersed equally. <laughs> I do not believe opportunity is dispersed equally. So... In 2014, there was a study by a Harvard professor named Raj Chetty, and he did a study across 50 major cities of America, and he measured multiple categories of, it's called upward mobility. How likely are you to move from one um, economic class to another? And he broke it up into five kind of broad bands. Like he took every economic class in America using tax return information, and he chunked it up into five groups. And he said, in this, in each city, how likely are you to move from the bottom group, group one, to the top group, group five? Mm. The American dream, you know, how likely are you to make it? Right. Charlotte was one of those cities that was on his list of 50. And it was actually the lowest ranked city among the 50. Um, There is a 4.4% chance that if your parents were in that lower, lowest rung, you'll make it to the highest rung. The best city was San Jose, and it only had a 12% chance, but that was the best possible shot. What's the highest rung though? Are we talking like a billionaire or something like that? What is the, what is this highest rung that you're talking about? You know, that's a great question. And I, I don't remember off the top of my head what it is. I will go back and I will look it up. I'm assuming it's not billionaire because that's just this whole other category. I'm assuming it would be in the category of healthy and wealthy or something like that. Like no no opportunities are take or 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 um withheld from you and you have more than enough money to have your day-to-day things. It's probably not some billionaire thing, yeah. Nor should it even be. I think part of it being in those chunks is it allows a chance for a range. So it's like the top range as opposed to kind of the top ceiling. Yeah, sure. They're like the relative wealthiest. Right. So if someone says, well, everyone has a chance, you could be like a 4% chance. You're right. (laughs) Chance, which I think a lot of times Americans, we love the Cinderella story. It is incredible. And it is. And we should be very proud of people who are able to make their way and live that dream. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to acknowledge that it is the exception. It's not the rule. Yeah. And we tell people a lot, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these communities don't have bootstraps. Mm-hmm. We are their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take away from our success to be able to make success more possible for other people. <sighs> Does it ever seem overwhelming? Yeah, it does all the time. Sometimes it seems overwhelming, just um, the scale. Sometimes people will ask our team, what do we do? And we're like, we just try to end poverty and solve hunger. <laughs> Casual. Right. It's ridiculous to even say out loud. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, 
And sometimes it's overwhelming, um, less so now because of COVID, but when I'm invited into a space with these community members, I am clearly in a different place racially, socioeconomically, privilege-wise, education level. Sometimes it's overwhelming to make sure that I don't violate their trust. Mm. Um, that can, sometimes I feel overwhelmed by my privilege and by the responsibility to not further harm people who've had a lot of harm done to them. Wow. Well, I'm thinking we've got some people hooked and they want to do something. Yeah. So can we, can you try to give us, like if we're not all going to try to work our way to the top like you and be senior manager, (laughs) um, but we do want to do something and we are like, you know what? I want to be part of this. Like I want to see, I want to see health equity. And even if it's not a hundred percent health equity, it's going to, that number is going to go up and I'm in, but I'm still going to keep my job. I'm still going to keep my normal. I'm not you know, going to work for the same organization. And can you give us a couple of to-do lists or some, you know, this, I say simplifying concepts without sacrificing depth. Like we, I think we got the concept. We know what it is the conditions where people work, live, work and play and these determinants that, but, what about an action point? Someone's like, I'm in, but I'm not going to go back and get my master's and then go work with Kimberly. But what do we, what can they do? <laughs> I mean, you could, guys. You could. That, that, is, that is one of them. <laughs> that is one of them. And I do have, I, if anyone's interested, it, I have Kimberly's number and go back and get your master's in a few years. We'll see. That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> um, so I actually, um, I made a list. Because I'm like nerd through and through. Because it's what you do. It's what I do. Um, and I, I don't know how you've put up with me for so many years with your <laughs> list maker. <laughs> anyway, that's another conversation. The grace of the Lord. Working yeah. with the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, I actually borrowed my list from someone who we saw together, Brian Stevenson. Yes. Is the leader of the Equal Justice Initiative. I feel about Brian Stevenson the way that most middle schoolers felt about Justin Timberlake in like the early 2000s. I love him deeply and with all of my heart. Um, Actually, if you wanted to do something, um, reading anything that Brian Stevenson has ever written or just following EJI um, on Instagram or going to EJI.org, any of those things would be an excellent action step. Um, He has a book called Just Mercy. Um, that talks about individuals who have been incarcerated, and it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says there's four things that you can do. One is you can get proximate to people who are suffering to understand their nuanced experiences. And I think when I have done that, when I have gotten proximate to people who are suffering, um, it has helped me engage in what's called dialectical thinking. I think you call it the almond. Uh, acknowledging that multiple things can be true at the same time. And so when you get proximate to people, whether it is just looking someone in the eye when they are asking you for money or when they're holding up a sign and you're at a stoplight, or if it's asking someone how they are, um, I feel like you can acknowledge two truths, that everyone is 100% unique and everyone is 100% human. And when you start to see that everybody is 100% human, you start to understand that they have this inherent value. Um, I think we would share a same faith tradition that says they're fully known and fully loved by the God who created them. And so yeah. they, they have inherent dignity. And, and I would even add like all being made in the image of God, therefore all reflecting God. Yeah, yeah. And therefore inherently worthy of value and your time regardless of their circumstance. Mm. Um, And then the 100% unique is I think where some of the policy stuff comes in. Nothing is a perfect solution for everybody. There is no quick fix that works for every single individual. And when you start to see everybody as unique, I think that helps keep categorization at bay. 
I had X experience with a person who looks like Y. Therefore, all people who look like Y must be X. It's not accurate. So, okay, that was a lot. But getting proximate is the first one. Um, Second one is um, challenging narratives that sustain problems. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes back to the bootstraps narrative that we talked about. I think there is also something that I, um, I call the zero sum narrative. And that is a zero sum game is if somebody wins, mm-hmm. someone else must lose. Mm-hmm. So there's only a hundred percent possible. If I go from 60 to 40, then you've earned 20. That's mm-hmm. the zero sum game. I believe fervently that systems of exclusion and oppression are built on a fallacy mm-hmm. that safety and fulfillment are zero-sum games. Right. I think it's a lie. I think it is a narrative that capitalizes on fear that people won't belong. Mm-hmm. And so if we make the path easier for someone else, it must make it harder for us. Mm-hmm. That is not an accurate narrative. The accurate narrative is if we make the path better for others, a rising tide lifts all ships. You know, that's the narrative that I think we should hold on to. So, And the back to earlier, you said, and it's the right thing to do. And it's the right thing to do. Yeah, Can you I mean, say the phrase again? I mean, I was at that talk and I remember that too in his book. Challenging narratives that... Sustain problems. Sustain problems, yeah. Um, the third one is doing things that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think this will be a little bit easier to do in person. Um, Please wear your mask and get vaccinated if you're comfortable with that. (laughs) uh, This goes back to proximity, I think. Um, Doing things that make you comfortable. I've learned more from church basement neighborhood association meetings than I will ever learn from gleaning data or getting lost in the doom scroll on social media with people I don't agree with. Mm. Amen. (laughs) in order to I feel like in order to grow we've got to be uncomfortable and I feel like we've got to be when I have found the most value in conversations is when I humble myself enough to ask what is it that someone else needs and is there a way that I can use my skills to help you with that um not You went out on me there. Your your face is wonderfully frozen on the screen. So I'm going to make sure everything's good with the internet. It's good on my end, I think, but I can't hear you anymore. But I can see a frozen image of your face. And I'm assuming you're saying just the best things that anyone's ever even thought about. And there you are. Your face was frozen and I didn't hear some stuff you said about being uncomfortable, but I'm sure it was probably no, like just the best thing anyone's ever even thought of before. Just Nobel prize winning, but I didn't hear it. (laughs) Um, So you were saying about being uncomfortable, entering into the people's stories and, and then we lost you. Oh man. Yeah. Sorry. I think I just got like, maybe my laptop felt my passion. It just couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, Yeah, I just feel like it kind of goes back to what we talked about, about that kind of all or nothing culture where we feel like we have to be everything to a person or to a system, or we feel like we can't do anything. And I think the harder and um, braver work that I always try to push myself to do, and sometimes I don't succeed, but I always feel like I've learned the most when I do is to actually be in spaces with people who are hurting, mm-hmm. like to actually make the effort to hear what they need and to ask, is there any way that I could utilize my gifts to help you achieve what you're after? Um, I think that helps set some healthy boundaries too. Like you don't have to be everything to, yeah. to, to people, but just listening, like, how you doing? What do you need? Can I help with that? And they might say no, because you look like someone who they don't trust or they don't know you. And that's okay. Like, that's not the point. The point isn't for me to feel better about helping someone. The point is for me to get out of my comfort zone to hear what the real needs are. 
It's so good. And then the fourth one, possibly the most important, um, is to stay hopeful. Yeah. How? Oh. I think, you know when you look somebody right in the eye and you see the moment that they realize that you see them? That's namaste. Yeah. Like I see that, God in you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Every single time that happens, I'm like, oh, I'm in it. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back in the game. Like you are extraordinary, you human. I am hopeful about what you can contribute to this world and this society. And I see it in you. Like it just, like when you see people and how beautiful they are, I don't know how you cannot be hopeful. Maybe, maybe it's on the other end of it. Maybe it's like the lack of hope would be if you've experienced enough time where people looked at you and didn't, didn't acknowledge it. Yeah, or didn't see You're me. not human. You're not enough. I don't see you over and over, generation after generation. You aren't anything. Yeah, it which I think is hopelessness. what we do um, to a lot of these people who have been excluded, a lot of these groups and individuals. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good answer. You're so good. Thanks. So these are things that I can do. I can go to that website Mm hit -hmm. the book, try to do these four things. Yeah. What about, what about not just me? What about us? Mm -hmm. What can yes. we do? You know, so more of this, maybe to in the policy category or something. Yeah. So, you know, at a, at a sort of micro policy level, most businesses have policies. Most organizations have policies and they are influenced by the people who work at that organization. So just evaluating the policies of the organization for which you work oh, and asking yeah. the question, are they creating barriers or gaps for people who don't look like me? That's good. Or are they at least not supporting them? You know, that's a policy that directly impacts who can and cannot succeed in the place where you spend the majority of your time. Um, it's really simple and so obvious now that I hear it. Yeah, yeah. I would also say a lot of those things that we just talked about um, on that personal level, you could totally bring into a group that you interact with. Um, you could create opportunities for um, your friends or your colleagues or your family to get proximate to people who are suffering. You can challenge the words and narratives that you hear come up at the dinner table to say, tell me more about that. Why do you think that way? What experiences have you had that have led you to that observation? I'd like to learn a little bit more. All of those are phrases that, you know, hopefully won't create World War III, but open up the dialogue to challenge some biases that a lot of times Sometimes that's hard. That's the hardest for me because being proximate with people maybe that are, have had different experiences than me, I, I tend to go towards that. And the uncomfortable part of being around people who are suffering, it's like, it is hard, but it's still something that I want and I want and lean into the staying hopeful. I tend to be more hopeful. Yeah. The challenging the narrative that sustains a problem especially when it comes to race, um, sexuality, orientation. Yeah. Really, I mean, you could just say marginalize or oppress or whatever. That's usually when I'm like, oh, God, now I have, to, I have to say this to them and they're going to be mad at me. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So that sometimes is the hardest, but I found is, I, I, I have not found a lot of fruit in the, in the moment. Yeah. But what I'm hoping is if we get more into this, that phrase you use, like the health equity, or there's just more equity in general, mm -hmm. then maybe when people are, are continuing narratives that sustain problems, if more of us challenge that, they're actually a bit of the outsider or the minority voice eventually. Instead yeah. of like, well, that's just what we say. They become the only ones left that are saying it. And everyone's like, no. That's mm -hmm. not okay. And then they're like, oh, well, 
no one's listening to me anymore. I guess I'll change my mind or, or at least stop saying it, but it's hard for me in the moment sometimes. Oh, yeah. That's not actually, that's not true <laughs> or <laughs> that's not, that's not okay. That's not loving. And I think that you're basing it on false narrative that is not on relationships. It's not on data even. Yeah. But sometimes I'm just like, Oh man, yeah. I'm just at the grocery store. I don't want to get into this. Yeah. I'm just trying to eat my scrambled eggs. Like, I know that that, yeah, I am with you, Jason. It is so much harder for me to have loving conversations with people who um, I feel like are attacking those groups than members who are in them. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of those conversations that I've had with people, I'm realizing at the root of the root of the root is some kind of fear that they won't belong anymore. Yeah. Which is so ironic. (laughs) So ironic. Other people aren't allowed to belong. Um, so, but yeah, I agree with you. It is really challenging. There are people who I love who are in my family who have diametrically opposed views from mine and my parents, God love them, are somewhere in the middle at every major uh, dinner or family gathering. We'll just roll a grenade. Uh, <laughs> like, let's talk about Can you pass thing. the stuffing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's talk about this polarizing topic. And then they'll just back away and it's just like, <laughs> so and they're doing a service because they, they, they're somewhere in the middle and they think it's fine. Yeah. And actually I think I really appreciate that about them, mm-hmm. even though perhaps the method at which they go about it, if we could just have like one family meal where we didn't uh, get into a major political discussion, that would maybe be awesome. But I appreciate that they're willing to have the conversation yeah. because I feel like a lot of people um, would rather just say, I affiliate myself as this. And so I 100% believe all yeah. the things of the loudest voices of this to be true. And I 100% reject anything that you have to say as being mm-hmm. accurate. I love that my parents are like, I know you don't get along, but you have to love and talk to each other. So you're going to do it every time you're in this house. Oh my goodness. I love it too. Well, we paused at business policies. What, what, what more in the micro category? Yeah, so I think um, creating the opportunities for people who are around oh, yeah, to engage in those yep. things. Yeah, and then um, challenging those narratives um, mm-hmm. in the ways that you can and in the ways that you feel comfortable. I, I want to acknowledge too that it's very difficult to do that if the person spreading the narrative is the person who's employing you. Um, or mm-hmm. a person who has control and power over your livelihood and your health. Mm-hmm. Um, so I acknowledge that that's not possible for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think at that broader system level, mm-hmm. I feel like there is the opportunity to start seeking to understand more about policies. Yeah, It's not fun. It's exceptionally complicated and it's laborious but I think it's worth it Um, because a lot of times people have conversations around policy about should we stop this thing or should we start it? Should we give it more money or less money? And I think the better question often to ask is what do we need to do to change this system to help it work better for the people who need it? And you can't really contribute to those ideas if you haven't taken the time to learn the policy in the first place. And then I bounce right back with how. How do we learn these things? Yeah. So um, most of your elected representatives have like one pagers on policies that they're about to vote for. Um, If you can find different news organizations, there's also a large number of um, policy centers run through universities that do issue briefs on various policies. I mean, you can you can start with just Google, (laughs) really. Um, I mean, there's the Violence Against Women Act is something that's been in the news recently. You could research that. Um, But there's a variety of resources to be able to find issue briefs so you can get the nuts and bolts about different policies. Again, you don't have to be an expert. Um, And then sending an email or more effectively calling um, a representative who's about to vote on that can be a really powerful thing. 
Wow. Do you have something for us that kind of, as we wrap up here, it seems like, you know, if someone they're, they're going to, I'm going to Google or they're going to go to EJI.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other, any other just kind of immediate suggestions of like a place to start either website or do you think EJI.org is, is your, is the one, or do you have like one or two more that you can think of? But it kind of depends on what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the thing is, um, is there a group or a social determinant that you would want to start with? Because that yeah. would affect where you go. Um, you know, the housing authority websites are always a great place to learn about the current state of um, subsidized housing in America. Groups like uh, Feeding America um, are really great opportunities to learn about food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of depends on the thing. Right. And I think that's where it goes back to, you don't have to solve all the world's problems. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you have a passion or an interest, um, I don't ever wake up feeling a sense of heavy obligation about this work. I feel like I am um, advancing a cause that I naturally have an interest and passion for. And that is different. I would call that operating in my purpose because I don't feel like I have to. Um, I feel like I, I get to, or I'm still committed to it. And that feels a little bit different. Like I would never want somebody to go look up all these policies because they feel like they need to do that to be a better person. I would much rather um, that they, you know, look somebody in their community in the eye the next time Mm. they pass them on a sidewalk. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, Say that phrase again about your, your purpose. I mean, your, um, What's the phrase you just said? That was really great. Operating within your purpose. No. Operating within my purpose? Yeah. yeah. I, think that, I think that's what um, That's so good because what that is, is that's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I didn't hear is that it's even related to whether it's your career. I mean, you have the career, so you have, you're dedicating more time to it because it's your career. But either way, you're operating within your purpose, which means if you had a completely different job altogether, you would likely have maybe less time to dedicate towards it, but it would still be part of your purpose and part of your passion, which is kind of where most of us are going to land, right? Most of us listening to this, we're going to land in that. And I love these practical ideas of maybe somebody just nerded out and went, I'm about to get some serious data and I'm getting maps and I'm getting all the policies and the statistics and someone else just went, I'm going to look more people in the eye. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If you want to go to maps, quick segue, policymaps.org. There we go. Tons of (laughs) census information. Um, There's also a website from the university of Wisconsin that measures what's called the area deprivation index. And it's an aggregate of all social determinants of health and it goes down to the census tract level. So if you wanna see some of those patterns like I was talking about in different cities, that's a really powerful visual way to do that. Um, Somebody just got super pumped. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, right, yeah, look, people in the eye, I get it, but I wanna really, and they just went, yay. Oh, that, that person is my lobster, please contact Jason. <laughs> Let me know who you are. Uh, Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Jason. So many people who I work with have asked me, okay, what's your professional goal? And really what they're asking is something David Cuthbert said on your podcast. It's the up and to the right. Um, That concept of what position are you advancing to? That's really what that question is geared toward. But for me, my ultimate is to use my powers for good. Like I just, I want to use the skills that I have to bring out that inherent dignity and value right. in other people. And I can yeah. do that here, That's but I can so also do it when you and I are hanging out one day in the gym auditorium on a Sunday morning. I can yeah. do that anywhere. That's so good. That's so much better than like, what, what's, I'm just looking at your title again. 
in 10 years, I want to be the super duper senior manager of the, it's like, no, that's not the goal. <laughs> I want to be the president of all of the operational performance. No, it's, yeah, it's wherever you are, right? Yeah, because the reality mm. is I could, there is a high attrition rate in healthcare. Mm. Um, I could leave tomorrow and they would find another senior manager of operational performance in about four weeks. And within about a year, most of the people who work on the team probably wouldn't have ever interacted with me. Like that's just yeah. the reality of it. So there's no value in me placing my worth in my title. Yeah. It's not sustainable. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Ah, oh, this is so good. Well, thank you for this wisdom and for your passion for it. You're, you really do. I'm just jotting down a bunch of notes, my own action points here, but awesome. you do a really good job of, of simplifying a concept without sacrificing depth. I feel like I have some actual real resources now to live into this more. I'm more of the, I've always been the look people in the eye guy. And, and even like when I travel um, in other parts of the world, or if I notice that there are other people traveling from other parts of the world i'm super uh, eye contact guy kimberly yeah. kimberly my wife kimberly my spouse kimberly she um notices that she's like you look at everybody like you can't you know, and i think that it heals the world 100 percent um, but but it doesn't heal the world in every way <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't help with the the investment, the banking investment things and all these other things you talked about. But I feel like whenever I look at someone that is different, that the world would say, you guys are probably enemies. Mm -hmm. And I just look at them with just reverence, a reverency, you know, an awe of, of what they, who they are and what they are. And I'm like, I just, I don't, I, I just did a little bit of healing in the world just then. And there's another one and there's another one, you know, uh, but I want to learn more about, the data stuff. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be trying to, to look at these things online and learn some more. So thank you for your time and thank you for giving yourself to this work and for teaching us so much. Really. Sure. I'm glad I finally know what you do. <laughs> We've been friends for all these years and it's just like, I see Kimberly and she smiles and we chat and we hug pre COVID and <laughs> again one day and I kind of got it when I went to that event that you had mm -hmm. that, that I came to but I didn't really get it and so now I feel like I'm starting to get it so I'm even more thankful for what you do well thank you thanks yeah. thanks for letting me chat with you it was really good to see your face and hear your voice and get to talk with you it's been a while I know I know well you know we can arrange for it and i'm have you gotten your vaccines i have so i'm uh a week away from second vaccine nice so you know actually we're not really supposed to do so, too much hugging even after that but we can still like we can still hang it's gonna be great <laughs> which one did you get just out of curiosity moderna moderna oh. moderna yeah, yeah. Awesome. Moderna, that's one of them. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm uh, semi dreading, not dreading because it's good for the world, but I'm semi dreading the day after the second one. I've heard few, heard a few stories, but ultimately, bring it on. It's the only it's the only shot I've ever taken ever mm -hmm. that I really had like a go for it, like because I don't like needles. Yeah, and I just like got in my head. I was like saving the world, you know, and and it was nothing. <laughs> they just were like <laughs> it was over, and I was like oh. Oh my gosh. Can I show you, uh, it's like a 30 second video. Can I show you so fast and tell me if you need to go, but can I show you so fast this video from one of our vaccine sites? I'm still recording and we'll find out later if this gets into the podcast. Okay. This could be, um, I don't know what kind of feedback situation it's going to be. So mm -hmm. part of what the community engagement team has been doing since January is, um, using data to figure out which communities are at highest risk of serious impact for COVID, which again follows race and ethnicity lines and trying to distribute those vaccines in communities like in churches and 
um, different sites. And at one of these sites, there was a lady who was really scared of needles. And so the vaccinator, um, she sang to her to distract her from her shot. Hold on, let me see if I can. Oh, I know that's gonna work. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The anticipation is building. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so good. That's gotta go in the video version of the of this because that is it. That's what we just talked about. It's the thing. It all encapsulated together. It was with health and she was looking her in the eye. She could have just been like, look, I got to do a thousand of these. You, you need to just do it <laughs> by. And she just sang with her. She even finished the song with her after she was done. And there was harmony. There was literal harmony. And there was harmony, <laughs> which is also very symbolic. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, How can you not have hope? It's so good. Yeah, that will keep you going to have hope. Yeah. <sighs> All right. If this is still part of the recording that we that I put online, and if anyone's still listening, thank you so <laughs> much for <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to things about things. I'm really grateful. 